Hello, everyone, and welcome to After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear, and we are back at it one week away from the 2018 NBA Draft. It is Thursday, June 14th, recording this at around 3 o'clock p.m. Uh, For those of you who are listening on podcast.com, after the fact, after this comes out, today's episode is just going to be our one week away deep dive into the NBA Draft be talking some prospect evaluations, um, a kind of pseudo mock draft, looking at the top 10 in lottery, um, and then sort of talking about what teams should and will do, scenarios and options to look out for, what group of prospects teams will consider, you know, whose stocks are rising and surging, whose are falling, all along those lines. Once again, this is After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear, and, you know, let's just get right into it. Um, So the way I'm going to sort of structure this is we'll sort of start at 1, work our way down to around, um, we'll definitely do it to 10, potentially further than that. Talk about the team picking, you know, roster composition, prospects they'd be interested in, uh, who they're going to end up picking, who they'll consider, and then we'll talk in depth about the prospects themselves. So, the way I look at this draft, and then another thing we'll talk about um, is the Michael Porter Jr. news that came out today. We'll be able to discuss that in multiple different ways in regards to different teams, his stock, him as a prospect, and whatnot. So, we are one week away from the draft, and I think at this point, one thing that you can see for certain is that the top four prospects picked... You can see it's basically locked and set in stone who those top four guys picked will be. Um, we know DeAndre Ayton is going to go first. The Sacramento Kings are at two, and you know they're Sacramento Kings, and they may not pick Luka Doncic at two and may pick Marvin Bagley instead, which would be incredibly delusional and stupid. Um, but they're there at two. The Hawks are there at three. Grizzlies at four. Those four prospects of DeAndre Ayton. Um, Donkic, Marvin Bagley, and Jaron Jackson. Um, we know Aiton's going one. Whatever order the other three come in, those are, at this point, locks to be your top four guys unless, unless something unforeseen occurs with any um, of the prospects, which I highly doubt at this point. And even still, those are your top four guys. Um, let's, let's start off with the Phoenix Suns. And the basically the surefire almost lock, if it, if a lock is a hundred percent, they're at ninety nine point nine right now with DeAndre Ayton and the Phoenix Suns. So let's talk about the Phoenix Suns a bit, and we'll talk about DeAndre Ayton a bit as well. Um, again, I think this pick is a virtual certainty. Um, he himself has said that he is going one. The Suns brought him in for a big workout, had him watch the finals with Devin Booker, with Josh Jackson. Um, with TJ Warren as well, you know, they're three, I guess, core guys that they have, obviously Devin Booker, Josh Jackson being the top guys and the prized possessions of that franchise. Um, I am of the belief that Luka Doncic is the number one prospect in this draft. He can do anything you could possibly want from a two or a one, as far as creating his own shot, ability to shoot from range, Ability to pass, create, and playmake for others. He's a total package. 
He's the best player in this draft. Nothing is going to change my mind on that. However, when this whole draft process started, I was of the belief that the Phoenix Suns would be better off picking DeAndre Ayton because of their roster, makeup, and composition. When you have Devin Booker already, a two-guard who has the ball in his hands a lot and is just an all-around pure scorer, and you have, in your front court, you have, at this point we can call him a bust in Marquise Chris, someone I was high on when he got drafted, but he's he's, he's, not, a, he's not a center, and he can't really be a power forward because he plays like a center. He doesn't have any range or anything. He can't guard other big-time bigs. Basically, the only thing he can do that he's shown so far in his NBA career is dunk. You have Dragon Bender as well as here in your front court, and I am not giving up at all on Dragon Bender. He was raw as you could be when he was drafted. Was always destined to be a long-term project. He is tall. He moves well laterally. He can handle the ball. He can shoot from range. You have the ability to have this inside-out dominant threat, and at worst, he's just a stretch four who can handle the ball as well. Next to DeAndre in Bender's a long-term piece. But the point is, is that you don't have a dominant big to go along with your dominant wing in Devin Booker, and then your wing, or your elite, or destined to be elite, perimeter defender, tweener forward type in Josh Jackson. So, based on that, because if you're picking Donkic, you're forcing him or Devin Booker to be a point guard at all times. And... You know, Donkic is a good playmaker and can create, and people like to think that he is a point guard, but he's really a shooting guard. And before they acquired Alfred Payton, they had sort of, Phoenix had sort of experimented with the idea of putting Devin Booker at point guard, and that's that's just not him at all. So you'd kind of be a little redundant in that you'd have two shooting guards who their greatest strength is their ability to put the ball in their hands and for them to score. And you'd be doing that without having really a top-notch big man prospect on your team. That's why you have to pick DeAndre Ayton here. And that is what they're going to do. And you'd be looking at a team. And this this is a solid foundation. You have Booker. You have Ayton. You have Jackson and Warren as your other two um, wings at the small forward spot. And potentially Jackson as a tweener type. Dragon Bender could fit very well with DeAndre Ayton, dependent on if DeAndre Ayton can significantly improve his defensive abilities. Um, But even still, Ayton and Bender both have the ability to take the ball and shoot from range. Ayton has a very good post game as well, so I think they would fit very well together. And you have, as I said, Warren as your scoring small forward type. Jackson, whose three-point shot improved as the season went along. We know he has the really top-notch defensive ability. And you have Booker. As far as the point guard spot is concerned, um, you need to find your long-term answer there. They had they traded the second-round pick for Alfred Payton, who put up big numbers with them in the second half of the year. I don't think if you could re-sign him for one year, I don't think that's a bad idea. He's obviously not your long-term answer, but even with DeAndre Ayton, you're still going to be, you know, in the bottom five, bottom six, bottom seven of the NBA next year. So you're gonna be able to have the chance to get a point guard uh, prospect with your top pick next year. So 
that's the gist behind this pick. Now let's look at DeAndre Ayton, the prospect. On my big board, he's number two, obviously behind Luka Doncic. You look at DeAndre Ayton, the mold of player that he is, is that sort of dominant all-around big man type that we see in the NBA today with Joel Embiid, right? The guy who can get the ball in the post and get to the rim and get that, just get position, pound his defender and get to the rim for a finish, can shoot a three as well, and has to be a top-notch rim-protecting defender. DeAndre Ayton does not have that defensive ability yet, and that's sort of where the shortcoming could come from. As far as his comp, uh, Kevin O'Connor from the Ringer, I think, has what basically the best comp you can have for DeAndre Ayton, and that's a blend of Patrick Ewing and DeMarcus Cousins. Whereas, you know, Patrick Ewing had a lot of athleticism, and DeMarcus Cousins, who was just this dominant um, offensive threat, but he's not really a substantial difference maker. Well, not really. He isn't a defensive difference maker. So if we look at DeAndre Ayton, we have a guy who, as far as a build is concerned, he's the prototype for what you could want in a center. His build, to me, is kind of like Dwight Howard or Hassan Whiteside. You know, he's obviously size. We all know the size that's there. But he's someone who's got huge shoulders. He's very broad. He has the ability to be able to, I think, add even more muscle to his frame, become even more big, and to add even more brute strength to what he already has going. And as an athlete, even with that size, he's very agile. He's very athletic. He moves well. Um, I don't see any uh, um, issue with him not being this athletic enough big man or a modern big in any of that sense. He has, as we mentioned, the Patrick Ewing comp. He's highly athletic, moves very well. We've seen how he can get that ball in the post, can get into the rim and hit a shot. He can face you up as well, and he can get out from the out from the interior and get into the again to three point range to hit a three point shot as well. Um, you look at the offensive st- uh, offensive tools and skills he has, and we look at the dominant elite offensive centers in the NBA today. Guys like DeMarcus Cousins, Anthony Davis. Well, Anthony Davis is not a center, but as far as just the NBA nowadays, we'll call them bigs. Dominant bigs offensively. Cousins, Davis, and Bede, they can get the ball. As I mentioned already, you give them the ball in the paint, they're going to pound their defender and get the sh- any shot they want at the rim. They're going to face you up and hit a jump shot from about 15, 20 feet away. And then they're going to be able to, if they have the um, space, they're trailing, whatever, they'll hit a three if you give them the chance to do that. DeAndre Ayton can do all of these things. You watched him play when he was playing with Arizona this year. We like to joke about Jalil Okafor rolling out of bed with 20 and 10. DeAndre Ayton rolls out of bed with 20 and 10. It did not matter what competition he was against. He consistently got his at that um, statistical point. I think, to me, offensively, he's only going to get better. I have no concerns at all offensively with him. He's got every sort of offensive tool that I could want in a modern big. Um, And another thing that he has, and I don't think people talk about this enough, even with NBA 
players who have this skill like Nikola Jokic or Mark Gasol is he's a really good passer. I think that's something that you'll see if you watch back a lot of his highlights. And if you look at actually his stats for the year, he only averaged an assist and a half per game. But there were games in there where he'd have, you know, three or four, a couple here and there. Watch him back. He is very he when the when you bring in so many offensive tools and skills that he has, you're going to draw matchups that leave other players on your team open. And he is able to find those players and make the correct pass in when he's needed to. Not as good as Jokic is, but of the same mold in that he has good vision and can pass well in situations where he's deep in the post or in situations where he draws a double team or draws a mismatch onto one of his other teammates. Um, so for me, that's all the positives with Aiden. And there's a lot. Build, athleticism, agility, offensive tools, passing ability as well. The negative comes into defense. Um, point blank, for the type of player that he sort of is, the mold of the modern Joel Embiid type, He's going to need to improve a good amount on the defensive end. As we mentioned earlier with the um, Kevin O'Connor player comps, the idea of him being DeMarcus Cousins is not far-fetched at all because I would not be surprised if the best version that ever exists of DeAndre Ayton is one who is not really that big of a defensive difference maker at all. Not that he, Not a liability. He's not going to be a liability defensively. He'll be better than DeMarcus Cousins is, but he's going to be someone who, you know, if, if the ball's put in, if someone like De, um, DeMarcus Cousins, right, has the ball in the paint and he's posting up DeAndre Ayton, I don't want that matchup because I know Cousins is going to get him every time. Same goes for Joel Embiid, Al Horford as well, guys who can take that ball into the post or could shoot. I'm not confident in DeAndre Ayton's ability to stop those top-notch bigs in the NBA. Of when they have the ball and he's on defense. I, I just really am not. Um, he, he doesn't really strike me as this guy who, if someone drives the paint, you know, where we look at guys like Rudy Gobert, where we look at guys like Joel Embiid, where we look at what Mo Bamba will be, we'll get into him later. If you drive the paint, your shot's going to get altered solely by the presence of those guys in the paint. DeAndre Ayton is not that. Um, if you're a smaller player like a guard or a wing of some sort, you're not going to have any qualms about going into the paint that DeAndre Ayton is patrolling. This is not to say that he's this, you know, Jalil Okafor level of a traffic cone defensively. He's below average. But I think he has the ability to improve a little bit, to become somewhat average or solid defensively, but never to the point where I would feel confident in him one-on-one with another top-notch big or to be someone who makes my entire defense better just because of his presence in the interior, kind of like what Tyson Chandler did with the Mavericks for many years, what Joel Embiid does with the Sixers, Dwight Howard did with the Magic. All in all, he's number two on my big board, perfect for what Phoenix needs. He's going number one, and it'll be interesting to see how he ever progresses defensively and how truly good and potentially great he can become offensively. I don't think I ever see Aiton becoming, you know, one of the top three bigs in the NBA or a perennial every single year all-star, but he will make some all-star teams and he will be a very solid player, an above average starter to a borderline great player for years to come.
So next prospect we'll get into here. Um, let's get into Luka Doncic, my number one guy on the big board for me. Um, let's get into the draft with him. There is a realistic possibility at this point, and maybe it's affected by the Michael Porter Jr. news today, that Luka Doncic will not go second overall and could potentially fall. That would be an absolute catastrophe and an absolutely enormous mistake by those passing on him. He is, if we're looking at everyone in this draft, and we say, okay, what prospect can I point to and say this guy is going to be a perennial all-star, or this guy could be the first or second best player on a championship team? No, probably not the first best player, but the second best player on a championship team. It's Luka Doncic. He has poise. He has maturity. We've seen him play against top-notch competition, playing for Real Madrid, playing in the FIBA World Championships, and excel at a high level. We like to talk about, in all these drafts, there's always the one guy who's this generational, transcendent, amazing passer. You know, last year, Lonzo Ball. We had Ben Simmons the year before that. Every single year, people like to act like there's that guy. But if you put those characteristics on Luka Doncic, as far as his passing ability is concerned, I think they would be justified. He can make any pass, style, situation on the court, you name it. He can make any pass he wants. He can fit tight windows. He can make fancy passes. He can throw the ball and get him past defenders in tight windows, as I just mentioned. There's nothing he can't do on, on that sort of aspect of his game, um, creating for others, playmaking for others, helping out and making his teammates better. Um, almost kind of like a Manu Ginobili type, or maybe even a James Harden type, whereas their primary part of their game is scoring, but they also possess the ability to be a top-notch playmaker. Donkic has that. Um, if you want to talk about just his ability to score offensively, he's a guy you can put in a pick-and-roll or just give the ball to him in an iso, and he's unstoppable. And a pick-and-roll with the uh, aforementioned passing ability, with his ability to shoot from range or to drive and get to the rim, you switch on him with a mismatch, he can go right by you, take you back and hit a three, or if the other guy gets a mismatch on him or is able to roll to the rim, he's going to hit him with a perfectly placed pass. His, his offensive game, to me, with the ability to pass and create and play make at a high level, to shoot from three with a high, at a high level, to get to the rim at a high level, he can rebound a little bit as well, he shoots well from uh, the free throw line, he contributes in every facet offensively. I like, we've seen the comp a lot of people have thrown out of Manu Ginobili. Um, I like to think that he's kind of a cross, and this is something that will be corroborated by lots of other analysts. He's a cross between James Harden and Manu Ginobili in that he has that sort of headiness and maturity and calming presence that Ginobili has, but he also has that top-notch ability to score Maybe not, obviously not to the level of James Harden, but he has that ability to get his own at will, has the ability 
to play make in situations where you really can't guard him either way, like with James Harden where you can't really commit to stopping shooting, stopping him on a pick and roll from getting his own shot because he'll find an open teammate. And if you try to clog that passing lane, he'll blow right by you to get to the rim or step back and hit a shot. I, I think that's a perfect comp is the cross, is him being a cross between the two. And I really like the aspect of him where he is someone who has played against top-notch competition before. When we watched him play in the FIBA World Championships, he was the best player on the court. When we've seen highlights of him playing for Real Madrid, where they made it to the Final Four, or they won the EuroLeague title this year, and he was the MVP of the EuroLeague tournament, best player on the court. And Real Madrid is the one of the best clubs in all of Europe as far as EuroLeague basketball is concerned. Um, I love Luka Doncic. This guy is going to be an all-star. Whatever team gets him is going to have gotten the best player in this draft. If he falls past Sacramento, that will be an absolute joke. A lot of people were saying that Sacramento is legitimately considering picking Marvin Bagley over him, was interested in Michael Porter. With the news today about Porter um, having inflammation around his nerves and hurting his hip to have his workout canceled, there's no way that happens now, but you never know. The Kings may king, but the point is, is that if Marvin Bagley or Michael Porter or whoever gets picked before Luka Doncic, there's there's no way to justify that, point blank. If Luka Doncic went to a college in the U.S. and was named John Smith, people would be fawning over him as the next great NBA player, but he has... The stigma of being a Euro prospect, which for some reason some people are still concerned about and still like to think that a Euro prospect is not equal to or comparable to a U.S. prospect at a top-tier elite level. I have people who I have talked to who have consistently talked about DeAndre Ayton is the best prospect in this draft. Again, I mentioned all the things I did about DeAndre Ayton. I like DeAndre Ayton. Luka Doncic is a better prospect than DeAndre Ayton is. And the fact that teams are nitpicking Doncic, you know, he may not have the best diet or be super in shape or his defense isn't that great. They're just nitpicking here. There's very few areas you can find legitimate, substantial faults or flaws within Luka Doncic's game. Again, I understand Phoenix not picking him first, and based on what they have in their roster right now, I would do the same thing they're going to do in picking Aiton. Nobody past the Suns, has any reason, if Luka Doncic is available, to not pick him. Sacramento Kings, Vlade, Vivek, who knows what they're going to do. They may king, as usual, but they have to pick Luka Doncic there. Let's get into the other guy the Kings are considering at number two, Marvin Bagley. Um, he's an, he's, Marvin Bagley is an interesting, interesting prospect to me. Um, we know this. We know that Marvin Bagley, offensively, gets buckets. Any shot he wants. Where he wants to play in the post, he wants to shoot a three, he wants to take you an iso, he wants to post you up, he wants to face you up, he can do, he can do that. Excuse me. There is no shot or anything offensively that Marvin Bagley wants to do, he cannot do. He has every... 
every tool offensively that he can combine with his incredible size and athleticism. He rebounds at an elite monster level, averaged basically the same rebounds per game as the aforementioned and likely, if not certain, first overall pick in DeAndre Ayton. Shoots very well from three, as I just mentioned. He's listed at 6'11". Um, he's probably more around 6'9". Um, he is a good prospect, but the thing that gets me with Marvin Bagley is the type of player he is and his skills and his uh, negatives is it's really hard to build a team with him in it. Like, offensively, he gets any bucket he wants. Any type of shot he wants, he gets. We know that. Defensively, he has poor instincts. He's not big enough to play center, which is where you'd ideally probably want to play him. You can't really play him at power forward because he's not going to be able to guard, you know, pseudo-tweener types. He's basically a defensive liability because he has poor instincts. He's not big enough and strong enough to handle bigger guys. So you can't really play him as a five if you wanted to, which, as I just mentioned, is where you'd ideally like to play him. And as a four... I don't know if he has that lateral quickness to be able... Well, not lateral quickness, because he is a very athletic player. But those defensive instincts to stay with guys who may be tweener types who may be a bit more athletic and faster than him. You ideally have to play... In the in the perfect scenario, Marvin Bagley is playing a power forward next to a top-tier defensive center. Because you sort of have to hide him based off of his skills defensively, and you don't really know what position he is and you don't really know what position he can guard. So based off of that, it's really hard, whether you're Atlanta, whether you're Memphis or whoever, or whoever ends up picking him, it's really hard to put him in a roster and figure out, you know, this is his set spot, this is how I can build around him, because you really just have no idea of where you slot him defensively and positionally. Because with, like, let's say he's six foot nine. And based off of him, like if he could be a a sufficient average defender, man, the stuttering was real there. If you could make him an average defender and put him at five, that's perfect. But he's going to get eaten alive, even at the power forward spot. He's going to be eaten alive. Put him on at power forward. Have him guard Anthony Davis. He's going to get torched. Put him at center. Against someone like DeMarcus Cousins. Let's say they're paying the Pelicans. He can't guard Anthony Davis or DeMarcus Cousins. He can't guard Joel Embiid. He can't guard Al Horford. He won't have to because they'll probably end up on the Grizzlies if the Kings don't pick him. He can't guard Marc Gasol. He can't guard Blake Griffin. Go on and on and on with any of the top-notch bigs that you want. He can't guard those players. I don't know if he's a 5 or a 4. I don't know what he is. And how do I build a team and a roster around that? Like, let's say he ends up with the Memphis Grizzlies at 4. I guess that helps a bit in the sense that he's next to Marcus Gasol. Because that's a center to play with him. But it's not the top-notch defensive center that you'd ideally want with him. If you're Atlanta, you can't pick him. And I don't think they will. I think they're going to go Jaron Jackson Jr. Because... You're locking yourself into John Collins and Marvin Bagley. I, I I just don't like that. I really just can't. I there's no I there's no scenario where if Marvin Bagley is not next to 
you know, a defensive-minded center, like, you know, a perfect player that for him to be next to would be someone like Clint Capella or someone like, you know, Clint Capella, Joel Embiid, um, Rudy Gobert. You know, these are the guys who are the top and the cream of the crop defensively as centers in the NBA. Without that support next to him, Bagley's weaknesses defensively are going to be accentuated and emphasized to an extreme level. So you're really going to have to, if you draft Marvin Bagley, if you're the Sacramento Kings and you draft Marvin Bagley, which would be an incredibly dumb decision because of Luka Doncic being there, you're really going to have to bank on Willie Cauley-Stein being able to bail him out. If you're Memphis, Marcus Gasol is not necessarily known for being the, he's not a bad defender, but he's not known for being the greatest of defenders. You're going to have to bank on him a lot as well. I just don't see a way that it's easy to integrate and build with Marvin Bagley on your team because I don't know where how he guards other players. I don't know how he plays or slots positionally. I know what I'm getting offensively. And because of that top-notch, modern, big offensive ability, I can have Marvin Bagley on the floor. But I have to really get the right type of players around him. Because if not, I'm going to get eaten alive defensively. Where I think he ends up, again, if the Kings pick him, which would be dumb, he's there. I don't think I still think that they end up going Donkic. Atlanta, I think, is locked into Jaron Jackson Jr. at three. So I think Marvin Bagley uh, ends up with the Memphis Grizzlies at number four. Moving on here, we got Jaron Jackson Jr. He's going to end up as the number three overall pick. And a quick aside here about the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks, this is something to look out for in that they are in the beginning stages of a complete, you know, tear down, build it up, rebuild. They drafted John Collins last year, an all NBA second team, or all rookie second team player, good rebounder, decent defensively, blocks a shot per game. He's a long term piece. You draft Jaron Jackson Jr. here. Jaron Jackson Jr. is the prototype modern NBA big. Rebounds well, plays good defense, shoots threes, plays well in the paint. The prototype modern big. If there's any negative, it's that the upside, you know, the crazy all-star upside probably isn't there, but a, you know, above average starting power forward center type for years to come, that is Jaron Jackson Jr. I don't see any way that he's a perennial all-star or this elite you know, one of the top 15, 20 players in the NBA, but he could be a starter for years, an above-average starter at that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Not every pick has to be a boom. He's going to be close to a boom, a very, very good, if not great, player. But the thing with the Atlanta Hawks is that they're them picking Jaron Jackson Jr. here, they picked John Collins last year, they're going to be in the beginning stages of their rebuild. And the two, pro- well, John Collins was not a, pro- a product of it because they had not started it then, but they will have had their two building blocks so far are both bigs. They're going to be picking high in the draft in the top five probably each of the next three years. And then after that, it may be another year of a top 10 pick depending on what moves happen. Probably no, another year of a top 10 pick and we'll see what happens after that. You can bank on it three more years of top five picks from the Atlanta Hawks. 
if you come across a prospect next year, year after that, year after that, who is a top-notch big, and you have Jaron Jackson Jr. and John Collins already there, you've run into the problem of having a surplus and glut of bigs. I do not advocate not picking a big this early on if he is the best prospect available with Jaron Jackson Jr. at three, which he probably is, just based off of his style of play, ability to move forward and progress in the modern NBA and to fit into any lineup you want. But, excuse me, but you run the risk, and it's something to look out for, that they could end up having too many bigs. Whereas, if you pick a big next year, you have three building blocks to show for it, they're all bigs. You could run into that possi- you could run into that problem and possibility very quickly. That's why I had sort of been saying maybe, you know, prior to all this injury stuff that just happened today with the uh, hip injury, maybe it would have made a little bit of sense to pick Michael Porter there just to give you a wing prospect with a lot of upside so you don't lock yourself into bigs, but at the same time, that's not necessarily picking someone just based off their position when you're at number three and you're looking for as much talent as possible is not a smart strategy. But with that being said, I could easily see in two years from now, they have Jackson and Collins. They have to pick another big. They have three bigs on a roster that they're trying to build and grow from the ground up, which is not ideal. Again, that's just a product of circumstance, but I could see that easily happening. Getting more in-depth here on Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, Again, there's nothing here to not like. You look at a modern NBA power forward, that's what Jaron Jackson Jr. is. He's safe. Like, if we look at the safest prospects in this draft, Luka Doncic, DeAndre Ayton, and Jaron Jackson Jr. are the three safest prospects in this draft. They're the most sure things. You know exactly what you are. Well, maybe not Ayton because he could grow into more defensively, but you know what you're getting, you know, as far as his entire game, what he's going to build into, uh, his athleticism, all that. But back to Jaron Jackson Jr., you know exactly what you are getting. I think the comp of Miles Turner is perfect for Jaron Jackson Jr. We look at how Miles Turner plays. A guy who attacks the boards, can get inside, finish at the rim, and hits a three well, that is Jaron Jackson Jr. And we look at Miles Turner too. A lot of people expected that boom this year. We didn't get it. But even if that boom never comes from Miles Turner, we know that he is a solid modern NBA big who is suited to play as a starter for years to come. I think Jaron Jackson Jr. is better as a prospect and will be a better player than Miles Turner. So I think Jaron Jackson Jr. is the prototype for the modern NBA. Um, can block shots as well. Average three blocks per game at Michigan State. So you have that rim protection ability in the modern big that you want with the ability to shoot threes and step out, with the ability to be really athletic, with the ability to guard guys in the paint. Stands at 6'11", he's got a good wingspan, he's long, he's athletic. I'm saying all these positives here, they stick out. There's no notable negative I have with Jaron Jackson Jr. As I mentioned, if you want to have one, it's that I don't necessarily see, you know, all-star stud potential in Jaron Jackson Jr. But again, there's nothing wrong with him not being that type of player. Not everyone is. Safe pick, the right pick here for Atlanta at number three. Um, and he is number four on my big board. 
All right, so let's keep it moving here, and let's talk about a guy who I have been enamored with for some time, the number three player on my big board, and I think at this point a lock to go number five to the Dallas Mavericks, and that is, as Shaq West says it, Mo Bamba. Um, Mo Bamba is an amazingly tantalizing prospect. He's seven foot two. He's got what would be the longest wingspan. In, excuse me, seven one. He would have what would be the longest wingspan and standing reach in the NBA today. He is going to be the defensive player of the year at some point, if not at least twice in his career. Based off of Joel Embiid and Rudy Gobert's presence in the NBA, I don't. I can't say he'll be a perennial All NBA defensive first team player. But he is going to make multiple all-NBA defensive teams in his career. He is a menace at on the defensive end of the ball, in the paint, protecting the rim. With his incredible wingspan and reach, you cannot go into his paint. He can block any shot he wants. His mere presence in the paint creates an easier, or creates easier, makes his team better defensively, it makes it easier on everyone else on his team on the defensive side of the ball. We're looking at Rudy Gobert with the ability offensively to shoot a three. Um, that in college, you know, he didn't take a ton and he only shot about 27%, but a huge part of his training and workouts moving forward towards the NBA and what will become an enormous part of his game is his potential ability to shoot 33 to 36% from the field from three. I think that's definitely doable and realistic. If I can have him on the defensive end, swatting any shot that gets near him, taking on any big or anyone who decides to drive the lane on him and altering their shots just by him being there, on the offensive end, being able to catch any lob that's thrown up to him because of his long reach and wingspan, being able to move incredibly well with agility and athleticism, being able to shoot a three, back to the defensive end, being able to take on any switch that's thrown at um, thrown his way. He can be switched and guard any position from one to five. He has the lateral quickness, agility, and athleticism. He can get down in a stance, and he can take on any other man. You do not have the, um, the sort of risk that comes with other bigs who are top-notch defensive players where they're switched onto a smaller guy and they just can't hang and that creates a bad mismatch. Mo Bamba, in addition to being an elite, top-tier, defensive, interior, rim-protecting player, can guard any position from 1 to 5. That is an incredibly useful tool and ability and skill with how incredibly dependent and used switches are in the modern NBA. No shot will go unaltered. No big will have it easy posting him up. No one will be safe from him if they're switched on to him. And on the offensive end, sure, he does not have a polished post-game or shot within uh, the mid-range or a post-game where he can back down and post up anyone who's on him or face them up. He does not have that. And look, would you like him to have that? Sure, but that's not part of his game. He's a guy who's a rim runner, a lob catcher. Throw it up anywhere in his general vicinity, 
He's got it. You're in transition with Mo Bamba. You can't guard him on a lob. You can't stop that, even in the half court off of a pick and roll. With his ability to potentially be able to shoot 35% from three or roll to the rim for a lob, if that three-point shooting comes along to the extent that we think it will, he's going to be in a pick and roll near unguardable. Force him out to the three-point line, okay, he'll get by you and catch a lob. Try to guard that lob, he'll catch it and shoot a three. Defensive side, there's no way you can minimize the incredible impact he has on the defensive side of the ball. Offensively, if that three-point shot comes along, which I think it will, at least to a 33% level, which is not great, but for a center, it's fine. In the modern NBA, you'd like it to be higher than that. But if we look at you know someone like, I think his three-point shooting could be similar to a level of maybe a little bit lower, a little bit similar to like Joel Embiid's three-point shooting, uh, where he's not a knockdown guy, but he gets an open shot, he can hit it. Makes him incredibly dangerous on the pick and roll. A trailing three type. Um, dangerous in the transition or in half court. And as I mentioned defensively, this guy is perhaps the best defensive prospect as far as a big is concerned since Joel Embiid and Rudy Gobert. I, I think he will immediately be the third best defensive big in the NBA. He will immediately be an elite defensive player. Now, obviously, he needs to add some weight He's only at around 210 right now. He needs to bulk up a little bit. But with that standing reach of over nine, of about 9 foot 3 and the wingspan of 710 measurables that no one in the NBA has would be larger than the second um, longest wingspan standing reach which would be Rudy Gobert with the aforementioned defensive ability to alter any shot, block a ton of shots, offensively to grow into shooting threes well and to catch any lob he wants. I love Mo Bamba as a prospect. I think he's going number five to the Dallas Mavericks, and I think that's a perfect fit for him. I think the combo, they sort of tried to do this. Unfortunately, it did not pan out with Nerlens Noel. With him, the defensive-minded center, who can also catch lobs, finish at the rim off a of pick and roll, um, and Dennis Smith Jr. That is what they were going for there. I think with Mo Bamba, they can get that at a great level as I mentioned, with the three-point shooting ability and the ability to catch lobs and run the rim. I think they're perfect for each other, Mo Bamba and Dennis Smith Jr. Um, I think with Dallas, what's also interesting is I think they're going to be the team that offered Sheets Julius Randle on the first day of free agency, ultimately getting him because the Lakers will not take away their ability to sign two max free agents to sign Julius Randle. You potentially, you know, Mo Bamba and Dennis Smith Jr., Julius Randle, you have Harrison Barnes and Wesley Matthews. We know we've heard rumblings that the um, that the Mavericks want to become improve, want to improve, be a better team next year. Um, they have some money to spend. I like the idea of having Randle, Bamba, and Smith as your three, I guess, building block core guys. Um, Barnes, you have signed at high money, which for after this year will be three at large money for two more years after this. Um, Wesley Matthews opted into his player option, so you will have money freed up after those contracts end. Matthews is on a 16 mil. Barnes is, I believe, at around 20 or so. Might be a little less. Might be 19 or 18. But Bamba and Dennis Smith Jr., I love as your big and uh, ball-handling guard combo. And I would love Julius Randle with them as well. Overall, 
Mo Bamba is number three on my big board. Love him as a prospect. I think him to Dallas at five is a huge lock. I just can't see any way, assuming with our basically locked in top four, that they don't pick Mo Bamba. Um, especially with Michael Porter probably not going any higher than, well, we'll get into that in a little bit based off of the hip issue. Um, but Mo Bamba at five to Dallas, I think would be great for him, would be great for Dallas, and I love him as a prospect. I think he's going to be awesome. I think he's going to be all-NBA defensive player throughout his career, will win at least two, if not more, defensive player of the year award in his career. Love Mo Bamba. Let's keep it moving, though. All right, so after Dallas, we got six, and that's Orlando. This is the Trey Young spot. And Trey Young is the most polarizing prospect in this draft. You will have people saying he is the next Steph Curry. You will have people saying he is the next Jimmer Fredette. When I look at Trey Young, I see 2016-2017 Isaiah Thomas. An absolute liability who had to be hidden to an extreme level defensively but could also put up 30 to 40 any game he wanted. Plus, he has the ability to get 8 to 12 dimes per game. I don't... I think there is a medium between those two extremes mentioned on what he will be as an NBA player. I think that 2016-17 Isaiah Thomas on the Celtics comp is perfect because it's the same type of player. I think a poor man's Kemba Walker is also a comp that I think would be sufficient for Trey Young because at best, Trey Young is a guy who is a go-to, can light it up any night scorer, who also can get, as I mentioned, 8 to 12 assists every game. No matter what happens offensively, he's 6-1, he's an absolute liability defensively. That will never change. I don't see any way he ever becomes anything better off defensively. You're going to have to hide him. You're going to have to hide him every single game. We saw Isaiah Thomas in the playoffs before he got injured with the Celtics in 2017. There were stretches they had to take him off the court or they tried to hide him on the other team's worst player. Teams are going to go, let's say Trey Young's playing in the playoffs, teams are going to go at him like crazy. But you take that if... Best case, you have this offensive dynamo guard. Worst case, I I think the thing with Trey Young is even if he doesn't reach that level of um, talent or production that we saw with um, 2016-17 All-Star Isaiah Thomas, is at worst, he's a guy you can put on your bench who can be a huge spark to lead your second unit. Again, not what you would like to have at all with the sixth overall pick, but based on the potential upside there is, if that's your lowest, if that's your floor and your worst case scenario and your ceiling and best case scenario is him being that electric scoring guard, you take that. His worst case is being a sixth man who can come off the bench can lead the second unit, and light it up when your starters need a rest. Which is not bad at all. So I don't think the floor or the lowest extreme for Trey Young is as dire as expressed by people who think he's the next Jimmer for debt. 
However, the idea of him being the next Steph Curry, that, that's completely unrealistic and not happening. Orlando at six. Orlando, at this point, if you're sitting there as Jeff Weltman, the new president of basketball operations, and GM John Hennigan, or John Hammond, not John Hennigan. Shout out John Morrison. Um, oh, the wrestling reference slipped in there. Um, you have a team that has way too many overpriced contracts for players such as Bismack Biombo, Nick Vucevic, Evan Fournier. You still have Terrence Ross in there. It's just a hodgepodge of a weird mix of guys. Aaron Gordon had the best year of his career this past year. However, if he gets offer sheeted a big amount of money, if I'm them, I like Aaron Gordon. I'm not in this stage of where they're at and what they're, you know, they're basically building from the ground up. I'm not paying Aaron Gordon 18 million a year, 60 million a year or higher. It's just not worth it. I'd rather ride out the bad contracts, let them expire, and just long term have as little to no money on my books as I possibly can. I like Aaron Gordon. He's a good player. He's going to be a very solid player for years to come. I'm not paying him at that high of a price, especially for where I'm at as a franchise organization as the Orlando Magic. They have no one on their team who you can put the ball... Well, Evan Fournier is, Evan Fournier is a solid scoring guard, but he is not someone you can throw the ball to and say, hey, get... Throw him the ball and ISO at the end of the game and say, hey, get your shot. Get any shot you want. Get these points on the board. You need that type of guy, and they also need a point guard, a guy who can handle the ball, create, and play make for others. You get both of that with Trey Young. They have been linked to Trey Young this entire time. Unless Mo Bamba is there at six, which I highly, highly doubt, that's going to be the Trey Young spot as it should be. If you could take, you know, you're riding out the um, bad contracts of Fournier, Vucevic, Biombo, Terrence Ross, and you have Jonathan Isaac, this versatile defender who can shoot threes, who can guard anywhere from three to five at an elite level and can be switched onto twos and ones. And you have Trey Young as your ball-handling point guard who can handle the ball, can score at an electric level, can create and play make for others. Those are two solid, decent building blocks. Again, if my, if my prerogative with Orlando, if I'm in charge there, as much as I like Aaron Gordon, I need to clear my books as a, of as much money as possible with allowing myself the ability to draft top-notch talent at the top of the draft because that's the only way I'm going to improve because I can't if I, that's because I can't attract free agents. I'm the Orlando Magic here. Let Aaron Gordon go, draft Trey Young, get yourself another top, well, they're at six this year, get yourself a top five or six pick next year. You're still going to be a bad, um, stuck, growing, young, developing team. Um, but Trey Young is the perfect guy to sort of pair. At, he, he would be the face of the franchise and their star guy moving forward. I love Jonathan Isaac, who they drafted six the year before, but Jonathan Isaac is a very top-tier role-playing type, and that's fine. You need those top-tier elite defensive types who are incredibly versatile and can shoot threes as well. You need those 3 and D types, but that's what he is. Trey Young has star potential with a floor of being your sixth man and your leading on your second unit. With that floor, as I mentioned, it's a worthwhile upside gamble to take. 
I am a believer in Trey Young. I know a lot of people are not. I just think that his worst-case scenario still translates into a productive role. Um, he's going six. I'd be stunned if he doesn't. And I'm very, very intrigued to see, um, most likely, if not definitely, with Orlando, how he ends up doing in the NBA. Now, in my eyes, as far as this whole draft is concerned, I think the draft really starts and gets really fun at number seven because the Chicago Bulls have so many... I think I have in my head right now, I think there's six guys that I could see them taking at seven, assuming our locked-in top four and our very likely five and six of Bamba and Trey Young are taken. Basically, you know who the first six guys taken in this draft are going to be. So you're sitting there at seven. You're the Chicago Bulls. You have your two guards in Chris Dunn and Zach Levine. You have Laurie Markkinen. I could see them taking Mikhail Bridges. I could see them taking Kevin Knox. I could see them taking Wendell Carter. I could see them taking Miles Bridges. And I could still see them taking Michael Porter Jr. That's that's five guys. Five guys I could see them taking right there. Um, and I think that really sets the tone for what happens in the draft moving forward. If they take one of the four prospects who are not um, Michael Porter Jr., then I think at number eight, Cleveland takes Michael Porter Jr., and they don't even think twice about it. Because if you're Cleveland at eight, there's a lot of nice, solid prospects there. You know, Mikael Bridges is great. Kevin Knox, great. Um, Miles Bridges, great. Solid guys. Colin Sexton, Shy Gilgis Alexander. But in the post-LeBron world, which they are very, very likely going to end up being in, with the hodgepodge of guys they have, I don't think they'll be a, top, a bottom five, bottom six team in the NBA. And even still, I don't even think they have their 2019 first because it was traded for Kyle Korver. I don't know what the protections are on that. I would have to see. They The point is they have to get an upside boom prospect. And the only guy at eight who would have that ability that ability to be that, well, I think Colin Sexton would too, but to a greater level, I think Michael Porter Jr. is that guy. Again, I could see Chicago taking him at seven. If you're Chicago, you have Dunn, Levine, and Markkinen. If Porter stays healthy, you have this electric scoring, athletic small forward to pair with those guys. That's great. But if they don't pick him, which is also very possible, that's Cleveland's guy at eight. Um... Let's say Chicago doesn't take Michael Porter Jr. Someone whose stock has risen to an extreme level in the last probably two days or so is Kevin Knox. Um, I had never been really wowed or enamored with Kevin Knox in this whole college basketball season or draft process. Um, he strikes me, he's a tweener guy who strikes me more as a four. Um, and, you know, he's athletic and he can shoot okay and he's decent defensively, but nothing he does wows me or stands out to me at an extreme level. Um, he's very raw and athletic, but at the same time, like, you're really banking on him just putting a lot of these decent skills and traits together and collectively that cohesion making him this, you know, Tobias Harris-esque, you know, Jeff Green esque these combo forward esque solid uh tweener scoring types. I I I just don't see him ever being like I Tobias Harris is the comp that gets thrown around a lot. You'll see it from Kevin O'Connor, you'll see it from Jonathan Gavoni. 
I don't see him ever being that. I just think he's going to be decent at lots of different things, but he's never going to really be this top-notch scoring type or top-notch super athletic type. Um, I think he's someone who I can see. He attacks the rim well. He's big, um, and he's super young. He's 18, but he doesn't wow me. I don't really see a translatable way that picking Kevin Knox at 7 or 9 or 11, which is where he's going to end up going, over guys potentially like Miles Bridges or Mikhail Bridges, Wendell Carter, or even Lonnie Walker, who just has that translatable skill of being a scoring guard. I'm not crazy about that. At this point, he's going over Miles Bridges. The New York Knicks had him and Bridges in for a one-on-one workout. Uh, Chicago has interest in Kevin Knox at this point as well. Um, I could see if Chicago does not go the Michael Porter Jr. route, I could see Kevin Knox being the pick. Um, I could see Wendell Carter being the pick. I think with Wendell Carter, there isn't a lot of like sexiness. Whoops, a lot of sexiness to that pick. But I could see just getting next to Laurie Markkinen a uh, defensive-minded, rebounding big type next to Laurie Markkinen. I think that's solid. But at the same time, I think you can do better. Um, I think for them, getting a solid small forward is more of a need than a big. Because for the time being, you could just ride out having Robin Lopez there next to Markkinen, or you could get a little weird and try to see how you can make lineups around Markkinen playing the five. Um, I love Mikhail Bridges for them. I had, If you had asked me a week ago who I thought they would take, I would have said Michael Porter Jr. if he's there, and if not, Mikhail Bridges. Mikhail Bridges, your prototype 3 and D wing who's athletic, can get any shot he wants, can get to the rim, can face you, or face you up, can get an ISO and hit any shot. He's a guy who can play defense at a top-notch level. People don't think he's athletic, but he has a good level of athleticism to him. Prototype wing prospect, a guy who you can, he's not a shooting guard small forward type who teams want to play at small forward. He's a true small forward prospect who you could play at shooting guard as well, but there's no qualms about putting him at that small forward spot. I love Mikael Bridges. Um, catch and shoot, can create his own shot off the dribble. Um, I think a, I think for me, if we're looking at a comp for Mikael Bridges, maybe this is Sixers bias coming in, but a much better, defensively, I think a comparable level. Offensively, he's a better you know, shooter and all-around creator offensively. Bob Covington is not a bet. Robert Covington, um, I think, is a non... I think that's a decent comp. And for me, if you put a 3 and D guy who can catch and shoot anything, can put the ball on the floor and create his own shot, and can guard the other team's best, to play, uh, best perimeter player with Zach Levine and Chris Dunn and Laurie Markkinen, I think that's a great fit. I think that Porter or Mikhail Bridges should be their pick at 7 for Chicago. Um, I think it will be either Porter or Kevin Knox um, with an outside chance of Mikhail Bridges, but that remains to be seen. As I mentioned, moving from 7 to 8, if we're looking at Cleveland, if Michael Porter Jr. is there and not picked by Chicago, that's Cleveland's pick. The Cavs need that home run upside prospect. In a post-LeBron world, with this pick being valued, that they, they them owning this pick, and that pick being valued at such a high level, 
they need to get a guy who can be a star. I love Mikhail Bridges. I love Miles Bridges. I like Colin Sexton. I like Shy Gilgis Alexander. But those guys do not have the upside that Michael Porter Jr. has. Again, I think there is big upside in Colin Sexton potentially if he could control his intensity and refine his game to uh, refine his game a little bit. Um, but Michael Porter has been hailed as a top three, top four, top five prospect in this draft. And when you don't have LeBron anymore and you need to get that star to get your next phase of your team moving forward, even though there is substantial injury risk, the boom of Michael Porter makes it worthwhile for you to take him there. Now, if Chicago takes Porter at seven, then Cleveland, to me, it's... I, I look at Colin Sexton... I look at Shai Gilgis-Alexander, and I look at Wendell Carter. Um, I think Colin Sexton makes a lot of sense if Porter is not there at 8, assuming that Porter went 7, even with Mikael Bridges on the on the board, um, even with Miles Bridges on the board, even with Wendell Carter on the board. With Wendell Carter, I don't think you have, because you're, you can trade Kevin Love, but you're stuck with Tristan Thompson. Um, you have Larry Nance. So you have bigs already there. Um, so I don't think picking a big is the way to go there. I think Colin Sexton, to me, can be a little out of control and intense and reckless when he plays. But if he can really you know, put it all together at a simplistic, refined level, he could kind of be like a, um, not a Russell Westbrook or John Wall level guy, but maybe like a better version of Eric Bledsoe. Maybe a extremely poor man's hobo version of Russell Westbrook. This kind of bulldog, relentless, tough mentality guy um, who will just dunk all over you, um, will defend you super hard, will slap the hardwood. Um, I think that if he puts it all together and can improve his three-point shooting a little bit, I like him a lot as a pro prospect. Again, a better version of Eric Bledsoe or a hobo's version of Russell Westbrook, I think that's what Colin Sexton could be. And at that point, if Michael Porter Jr. is gone, the prospect with the most upside is Colin Sexton. I know most people will say it's Kevin Knox or Miles Bridges. I think it's Colin Sexton. And I think that's where Cleveland goes at 8 if Porter Jr. is not there. All right. Moving on to 9 here, we got the New York Knicks. And for me... I've said all along that if he's there, which at this point, if Chicago doesn't pick him, he will be, Mikhail Bridges has to be the Knicks guy. They cannot pick a point guard. Frank Nielakina is going to be great. He was never supposed to be a finished product within one year. He was raw. He was going to be a multi-year development guy. We've seen how good he is defensively already. He's going to be an all-NBA defensive player multiple times if not perennially moving forward. His, the, the idea of playing him as a two-guard with a scoring guard or better ball handler at one is not ideal to me because I don't see Frank ever being this consistent knockdown shooter to make it worthwhile to play him off the ball because if you put him off the ball, yes, he can guard either guard spot, but you're taking away what's the best asset and potential skill of his, which is 
him being able to be this big 6'6 point guard with incredibly long arms off the pick and roll, being a very good court, uh, having good court vision and passer. I think the pick and roll with Frank running it as a point guard with his potential ability to improve his shooting, that's where it's at with Frank. You know what you have as a above average elite defensive guy. Offensively, you need to allow Frank to improve as a point guard. Him as the passing ball handling point guard, that is where it's at with Frank Nielakina. I said last year I would rather have Frank Nielakina long term than De'Aaron Fox. I stand by that. His size, his defensive ability, potential ability to improve his shooting, potential ability to be a nightmarish pick and roll um, matchup, it's all there. It'll take two or three years, but it's going to come in time. With that, you cannot pick a point guard. Look at their roster. Porzingis is the franchise player. It will be in their best interest to sit him for all of next year, and that's what I think will happen. I don't want them, don't want them, not from a rooting standpoint, but from a team-building standpoint, I don't like the idea or want them to pick a big because that hamstrings you into playing Porzingis at the four consistently. I'm not saying play Porzingis at the five all the time, but you have to allow yourself the ability to play him at the five and get a little, um, experiment a little bit with Porzingis. I think David Fisdale is open to doing that and will do that once he comes back healthy to play. Um... For now, you have Ennis Kanter there, and he's done well with them. I don't like picking Wendell Carter there, even though he's a safe pick, because like I said, you're you're making sure that Porzingis stays at that four spot, and if you ever want to slide him to five, this guy you just drafted can't be on the court. Um, Their small forward group is abysmal. You have Tim Hardaway at shooting guard. You have Frank at point guard as a long-term guy. You need a small forward. They're small forwards last year. Before he was traded, you had Doug McDermott, you had Lance Thomas, and you had Michael Beasley. They tried to play Tim Hardaway at the three. He's not a small forward. He's a shooting guard. Mikhail Bridges is perfect for the New York Knicks. That defensive-minded, or that 3 and D, top-notch defensive player at the small forward spot who can catch and shoot any three and can create his own shot, that's perfect for them. You would have two wings in him and Hardaway, who can shoot the ball and can score at will. You would have Porzingis when he comes back, whenever that is, probably the 2019 season. You'd have, you can get yourself, you could re-sign Ennis Kanter at that point or draft a big moving forward. And Frank eventually develops into what I just said I think he will become. That's, again, you're going to have to add a lot to that. And they intend to when they have their big amount of cap space in the summer of 2019. But that's not a bad starting point. I think, though, if we're looking at number nine, I think Kevin Knox is a very strong possibility there for the New York Knicks. And I don't like Knox there for the Knicks because I think ultimately you're going to want to have to play, not have to, you're going to want to play him more at the four than you will at the three. He's a true tweener type. I don't think he's a true small forward type as people make him out to be. And if you're playing him at the four, you had to play Porzingis at the five. And if you're playing Porzingis at the 5, although at times it'll be nice to do that, you can't be playing Porzingis at the 5 every single minute of the game consistently. Starting him at the 5, playing him solely at the 5, you can't do that. Picking Knox does not solve your small forward problem. It just gives you a tweener guy. Mikhail Bridges gives you a true small forward type. Everything I'm saying about Knox, I think, also kind of applies to Miles Bridges. 
not you know everything about him as a player, but as far as positionally, you're probably going to tend to lean to playing him at the four more than you are at the three. So for me, I think Mikael Bridges checks all the boxes for them. Um, as far as who they will end up with, one of Mikael Bridges, Kevin Knox, Miles Bridges, Colin Sexton, and Wendell Carter will be a New York Knicks. If somehow Michael Porter Jr. is there at 9, they will not hesitate, and he will be their guy. Um, even with the news of the hip injury today, I still think, as I just mentioned, that he's Cleveland's guy at 8, but in the event that Cleveland passes on him as well, the Knicks will pick him in a second. But one of those five guys will be the Knicks pick there at 9, and if Porter's there, that will be their guy, so I guess that makes it 6. Um, but in, assuming Porter is going at eight with all the guys I mentioned, Mikhail, Miles, Kevin Knox, Colin Sexton, and Wendell Carter, Mikhail should be their guy there. As far as roster composition, talent level, Mikhail Bridges should be their guy at nine. Um, and the Knicks to me, a lot of that, a lot of what happens with their pick at nine, as I mentioned, Chicago at seven really dictates what's going to happen in those near four or five picks after their pick at seven. They're going to set the tone for the picks coming after them, obviously, because they're there. But that's where the fun starts. That's the first, like, unrealistic, or unrealistic, unpredictable, sort of you don't know which direction they're going pick. And that could impact lots of teams' directions. They pick Porter at seven. What does Cleveland do? What do the Knicks do? Maybe it even impacts the team we're going to talk about next. And that's the Philadelphia 76ers. Philadelphia 76ers at 10, they have to be praying that the Knicks do not pick Mikael Bridges at 9 and that Chicago does not pick him at 7. Or that Cleveland, I don't think they will pick him, but that Cleveland doesn't pick him at 8. Mikael Bridges is the perfect prospect for the Sixers. A knockdown shooter, a guy who can create his own shot on the perimeter and can play top-notch defense. Put him out there next to Robert Covington. He, Mikael Bridges would be your best shooter on the court. And you'd have two top-notch perimeter defenders. The whole, the, the largest, greatest weakness that the Philadelphia 76ers have, they do not have someone who can create his own shot on the perimeter, a perimeter scorer. They do not have any perimeter scorer. Markel Fultz was supposed to be that. Again, remains to be seen what he ever becomes, but as of this moment, he is not that. Mikael Bridges is the prototype prospect for the Philadelphia 76ers as far as your need for a perimeter scorer and a shooter, as well as the ability to add on even more to their top-notch defensive team abilities. I've been saying this since day one. Mikael Bridges should be the Sixers guy. If he's there, he will be. In the event that he's not, even though I don't think he's better than other prospects that will be available at that spot, based on the Sixers team needs, Lonnie Walker makes a ton of sense. A pure scoring shooting guard, the team's shooting guards last year, J.J. Redick, may not be back dependent on what happens. I think they will get LeBron. Um, that remains to be seen. My, as I said in my last pod, I don't have as strong of a conviction on that as I did previously, but I nonetheless still believe that LeBron will end up on the Sixers. In the event that that happens, unless he takes a super large discount, J.J. Redick's not going to be in that spot. Marco Bellinelli may be signed elsewhere. They're going to need... You know, we don't know what Markel Fultz is at this point. They're going to need a shooting guard who can score, a pure scoring shooting guard. Lonnie Walker is that. I still think that 
Miles Bridges is a better prospect than him, and I obviously think Colin Sexton and Shai Gilgis-Alexander are better prospects than him. They don't make sense for the Sixers. Lonnie Walker makes all the sense in the world. Lonnie Walker has had workouts with the Knicks there at 9, so his stock is higher than a lot of people think it is. But for me, it's Mikhail Bridges or Lonnie Walker. I don't think Shai Gilgis-Alexander is their guy there. I love Shai Gilgis-Alexander as a prospect. I would have him ahead of Lonnie Walker for sure, as I just mentioned. But Alexander does not shoot threes well and is better as a ball-handling point guard who you can be versatile with at either one or two defensively. For the Sixers, that's not what they need. They have Ben Simmons. They have TJ McConnell as a backup point guard. They need a scoring two. Lonnie Walker is that. However, as I just mentioned, Mikhail Bridges would be gold for the Sixers. The prototype of what they need for that team, he will be the pick at 10. If he is not there, it will be Lonnie Walker. <sighs> All right, so that makes us that takes us through the top 10, gives us a lot of deep dives into teams, deep dives into scouting and prospect evaluations. Um, I think one thing I would like to do as a whole um, I'll get into Michael Porter Jr. to end the podcast, but just right here, a quick little musings overall, I would say. Based on how I've just basically spoken this out and everything that's been talked about, I guess the top prospect who has the largest chance of falling is easily Wendell Carter. Very realistic possibility in my mind that he could last till 12 for the Los Angeles Clippers, which would be fantastic for them, for the Clippers, Assuming, as I just mentioned, you have your top four of Aiton, Donkic, Jackson, Bagley, then Bamba, Young, some order, Bridges, Porter, um, Knox, Lonnie Walker, Miles Bridges at 11, they could get Wendell Carter and Colin Sexton. That would be an unbelievable haul for the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, Again, He's a possibility for Chicago at 7 and the Knicks at 9. But as I just mentioned, I think there are other prospects those teams would take over him. Um, Kevin Knox, as I mentioned, his stock is surging. Over these last two days, he's went from a guy who teams thought would be picked probably between 11 and 15, most likely Denver at 14, to now he's at worst going to go 11th. And And probably has, at this point, surpassed Miles Bridges on a lot of teams' big boards, and overall stock. Um, As far as what today's news does to Michael Porter Jr., again, as we saw, I will read the official statement on Michael Porter Jr., what his agent said happened as far as the reasoning for his canceled workout tomorrow. Um, Let's pull it up here, and here it is. Porter will be evaluated again tonight, and if the doctor feels Michael is moving well enough to go through the medical evaluation tomorrow, we are going to proceed with the evaluation at 3 p.m. Central Time tomorrow. Um, After being shut down to do strengthening slash core stabilization work for his first four weeks in Chicago, and then being ramped up as hard as he has for the last three weeks, Michael developed some inflammation that wrapped around his nerve and caused massive spasms. Oof. This is very similar to when you hear of a player being out for a few days because of back spasms, then the spasms dissipate and everything is back to normal. We are being told that is exactly what we expect to happen to Michael. That is from his agent. 
Again, if it is what he's saying and it's just a spasm in his hip, okay, that's not terrible on a in a vacuum of, you know, severe injury levels, but Michael Porter missed a whole season with a back injury. He played only 53 minutes for Missouri this year, and when he did, he did not have that burst in athleticism that we saw in his high school tape. Just now, he's ramping up his activity for pre-draft workouts, and he develops hip spasms. Is this guy damaged goods? Is this guy just going to be injury-prone forever? Does his upside outweigh the injury risks that come with him? I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, I think to a team... First off, it takes away, if even if the dumbass Kings were going to somehow take him at two, takes away that possibility. Takes away the possibility of Dallas picking him at five with Dallas saying, hey, maybe we'll just pick Porter and try to sign DeMarcus Cousins in free agency. Takes away the ability for Porter to be picked at six. Lessens his chance of being picked at seven, but doesn't eliminate it. But I think this does, though, is I think it opens a clear path to him and the Cleveland Cavaliers and if not the Cleveland Cavaliers, the New York Knicks. He will still go 8th or ninth at the latest. But it is concerning. You know, outside, you know, if he had just had the back issue and missed the year, then that's one thing. It's not great, but you can live with just that one injury. Back issues tend to linger, but if that's his only injury on his docket, then fine. But if he ramped up his, I guess, level of exertion for pre-draft workouts... And that caused him to have hip spasms. That gives you the indication of if this guy gives it his all, he's prone to getting hurt. And you're saying that this guy is fragile, soft, and he's injury-prone risk. That's what you're saying. And that's very concerning. And I think at this point you have to raise the red flag on Michael Porter medically. I think for Cleveland and what their situation will be, that upside trumps it. For the New York Knicks, I don't know if it does, but in the minds of their execs, I have no doubt that it will trump it and that if he's there at 9, he will be their pick, no questions asked. I think on a level of just basic evaluation, sure, it's a red flag and causes a lot of concern, but as far as where he gets picked, I don't necessarily think that it will have as debilitating of an impact as thought. I think even before this injury, I think he was probably a lock to go 7th, if not maybe 6th or 5th, probably not going 5th or 6th, most likely going 7th. Now I think he's a lock to go at worst ninth and at best 8th. Or at at best 7th, but most likely 8th and at worst ninth. So not significant, but still not what you want to see. And as the good old Joe Girardi would say, it's not what you want. Alright, that's about an hour and 20 minutes or so of me deep diving into prospects, teams, and whatever at the top 10 of the NBA draft one week from today, next Thursday, June 21st. Um, I will have other pods coming within the next week discussing the NBA draft, prospects, what teams will do, um, a pseudo-mock draft like this and whatnot. Um, Maybe I'll have some guests, we shall see. But that is all for this episode, deep diving into the NBA draft of After the Final Whistle. Once again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Keep checking here on podcast.com for more episodes as they become available. And as always, 
Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to the NBA draft. Shout out to Mo Bamba. Shout out to Luka Doncic. Thank you for listening. Keep checking here on podcast.com. I am your host, Brad Clear of After the Final Whistle. And as always, goodbye and good night.